0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AWS Podcast. Great to have you back. Simon Leesha here coming from you in a hotel room in Singapore, so we'll see how the audio goes. And I'm joined this week by a guest all the way from New York City, Conrad Rushing from Splash. Welcome, Conrad.
1: Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here.
0: Good to have you here. So Conrad is the VP of Engineering at Splash, so he can talk us through all sorts of interesting stuff that they do there. But before we do that, uh, Conrad, maybe you want to give our listeners just a bit of a taste of, of what Splash does for their customers.
1: Absolutely. So Splash is an event marketing platform where we, our objective is to help people put experiences, in-person experiences into their, their marketing and branding and, uh, just general workflow. Um, and we do that for, for end users. Anybody can go to splashvive.com and pick up the product and put out an invitation for a party. I recently got married and did my entire invitation, uh, set up and, uh, whatnot through the, through the product. Uh, but we also service Fortune 500 clients who use the, use us to empower their entire event marketing, uh, workflow with, you know, hundreds of thousands of events per year. Um, and of course that involves integrating with their brand, integrating with their reporting systems, uh, involving their, their sort of, uh, publication hierarchy and workflow. Um, and making, making that just a, a really delightful experience for them so that not only is it easy and effective and providing ROI for them, for our clients, it's really just a, a pleasure to use the service. So so that's that's Splash in a nutshell.
0: Fantastic. It's it's interesting looking at Splash and the, the domain uh, of problem that it solves. I mean, we're talking multi-channel, we're talking spiky workloads, we're talking things that people are very personally invested in. So there has to be Absolutely. some pretty good engineering behind that, doesn't there? Absolutely. It's, um, uh, we have a, a 15, 16 person engineering team, which is still uh, pretty small considering the, the, uh, the number of
1: domains that we host and the number of, uh, uh bits that, that go through the channel. But that's, that's how I, how I like to do it. It's, it's how I think it's a, a copacetic structure for a team. But you're absolutely right about the spiky workflow. Uh, unlike, many other uh, sort of web applications we are primarily tied to physical events uh and sort of the, the lead up to them so we have these these bursts of activity around the creation of an event uh the sending of a save the date email the sending of a formal invitation the sort of like trickle and uh trickle marketing or nurture campaigns that go up to the the day of the event and then obviously the day of with people checking in at the door being added ad hoc uh and then being sent sort of uh aftermarket uh, surveys and follow-up information. So uh, an event might have you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people associated with it, but that activity is limited to these very small windows, and uh, we needed to architect our system to, to handle that very well while not costing us an arm of a leg.
0: For sure, for sure. So, so talk us through a little bit about that that architecture, and I'll I'll, I'll preempt something because we were talking a little bit before the show. You've been doing some some pretty interesting things with With Docker, and I'm always excited to say the word Docker because I'm I'm an old mainframe programmer, and only cool kids get to say Docker. So if I get to say Docker a lot this podcast, (laughs) I'm feeling good about myself. So it's okay.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, no. This I'm a I'm an old 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 fogey myself. I still remember building you know a a server for a client in the in the naughty audience and thinking that it was really cool that it had two CPUs in it, each with two cores. (laughs) I thought that was was so advanced. (laughs) uh, (laughs) So, like, not having my hands on the bare metal is, has been a, has been a stretch. I mean, not a stretch, just an adjustment over the years, but this is my first opportunity to really see Docker in a production context. And I've been really impressed with it. It's, of course, not without its, uh, without its idiosyncrasies, but any platform is, and it's bona by platform. Um, we, we have a, a containerized production system that is, uh, a little bit homegrown. Uh, we use, uh, we use an auto scale group. Within, uh, within EC2 to auto-provision uh, images of, of Linux that pretty much that just kick up their own Docker uh, server or uh, container, uh, but keeping track of the terminology is one of the major problems with Docker in my <laughs> But anyway, um, an instance will come up in order to respond to a given amount of load and then spawn the Docker containers that service the various parts of the web app uh, from the initial sort of proxy layer all the way back to the monitoring uh, containers and so it gives us this ability to be very uh, sort of have a microservice architecture while still maintaining what is uh, still a pretty monolithic web app. Uh, This is getting into the weeds a bit but we're in the process of breaking our old PHP monolith into a series of more supportable and flexible microservices but that's a very long road. We've still got the monolith around for quite a while. The Docker allows us to keep track of it in a a much more encapsulated way and that encourages the the long term sort of functional change that we're trying to encourage uh, in a development sense.
0: And so how, how often do you like to deploy your application? Everyone's everyone's different in the frequency, et cetera. But it's always interesting. I think our, our listeners really like to hear how often you deploy what your high level process is and how you structure your team around those deployments. Absolutely. No, it's said it's sort of a I have a, a circle of, of
1: engineering leaders that I, I meet with periodically. We sort of talk amongst one another uh, over beers and kind of one-up one another on how fast and how easy our deployments are, and also how, how sane and safe they are. And one of my friends you know, has, has something where you can deploy in five minutes. It's actually, his major problem is CI because uh, he can deploy faster than his CI runs, and that's not a problem that we <laughs> usually have. <coughs> but back to your question. Um, we deploy twice a week um, in, in regular cadence. We have hot fixes out of band, of course, but on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we uh, we put out uh, a build that has been put through several layers of integration testing and release testing over the previous few days. So it's sort of a, an iteration on the release train uh, methodology where a certain a day, a few days before a, a deploy is going to happen is nominated and all of the, the commits that are ready or waiting in the deployment branch will go into a testing branch. And if you're not on the train, then you have to wait for the next train, which leaves in a couple of days. Initially, we we had a, an architecture of doing a, a, a build a week, and that was things were that was when I started. They, things were backing up a little bit behind that. So people were uh, there were a lot of out of band hot fixes and. Uh, pull requests were sort of staggering out. People didn't really have like a, a feeling of a good rhythm going forward. And so I, I you know, tried to kick it up bit and move to uh, a quicker cadence. We tried a daily release for about two weeks and that proved to be a little bit too much for the way that the amount of testing and, and back and forth that we need to do to get, um, to get our features uh, sorted because we still are doing a lot of complex work. And we settled on, on a, a two, twice a week schedule. So how, that, how, that, how the metal meets the road uh, on that, or the rubber meets the road uh, on that is this release train reaches the, the, the staging uh, servers and once that's uh, finally tested and approved by all of the people involved who are notified through a series of automated systems built into an Ansible uh, flow or Ansible system that's does a bunch of uh, messaging out too, to the servers that are actually doing the work. Um, we trigger a rebuild uh, from the from the Docker registry level, and we store the previous uh, images for for roll for rapid rollback capability. Um, one of the, the things that I, I learned very well when I was in Tumblr was that rollback is really the, the most essential word in the deployment system. <laughs> it's, now, we do days and days of testing, but you're still not guaranteed that you're gonna catch anything, so catch everything. So when something does make it through to the production machine, you simply have to be able to detect it rapidly and roll back to the last known good configuration. And Docker lets us do that very fluidly by simply putting in place uh, new Docker containers, and bringing down the, the updated ones, uh putting up the last now good ones. But barring any any problems on that level. Uh, we roll out new containers, we gradually let the, the old containers die out as they stop receiving traffic. And the site keeps on ticking. It's a fairly it's gotten to be a fairly uh non uh concerning process. The other the other thing that we really always uh, put forward at Tumblr was the idea that uh deploys should be boring. There should be no sort of big event about it. Anybody could do it. It could happen at any time. And the structures that surround it are sufficient to make it relatively difficult to cause major site events. So we're not there yet here, but we're moving rapidly towards it. I'd say we're about halfway.
0: Well, it's definitely the 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 goal and the aspirational goal, and uh, you know that that whole concept of being boring, it should be regular, is is really the key. Uh, you know, you, you, yeah. I get to meet with a lot of different teams, development teams, and you now for some of them it is there's there's this huge ritual and fear level and process, and a lot of it is born out of the fact that firstly they don't do it that often, secondly their tooling is not great, and thirdly they have no easy rollback plan. And if you have that easy rollback plan, as you said, and you have a lot of tooling to make things automated, the effect of getting it wrong is very low. So you sort of will press the big red button with a lot more confidence than if you don't have that there. Exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah, we've um, the the sort of the third uh, leg of that tripod is the uh, coding structure that really emphasizes the use of feature flagging um, so that code can get out to production servers in a dark configuration Uh, Very early in its development cycle, as long as the the code is isolated, it can be deployed. And then you can sort of iteratively release it to small groups of people, to control users, to administrators in the production context. So there are no gotchas in the um, the flow from development server, release server, testing QA server to production. A lot of the final tests are actually done in production on production data. And that allows you to really see how, how your widget is going to. Form and identify any particular problems with it that would really only emerge in production. Because as much as uh, you know, Docker has this promise of being able to, to have portable environment from development all the way up to production. That's really never the case. There's always some aspect of of production that really can't be replicated in uh, uh, development. Whether it's caching or CDN structure or auto scaling. I mean, our development servers are are. Development servers are our laptops, so they don't really have auto-scale groups within them. And being in that kind of context can really have behavior that was unexpected
0: uh, on initial development. Absolutely. From a developer perspective, everything works great on your laptop. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Once you ship it, it becomes interesting. So talk to us a little bit about your your team structure because you've got a very deliberate team structure you've built there.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I... I like to, to operate in terms of sort of a contractual uh, agreement between various uh, layers of the of the environment. Um, so to that end, we have a, a front end team who operates really with a contract to uh, to the product management team and to the customer success team, wherein the behavior of the product follows the the scope of something like a like a PRD, a, a product requirements document saying this, this product is going to behave in this way, it's going to fulfill these promises that you're making to our clients. And behind the front-end team, which is working in JavaScript and um, PHP, middleware, and templating, templating code, and that kind of thing, they're operating on an interface, which is the fulfillment of a contract to the back-end, servers that provide database access, caching, authentication, uh, separation of power, separation of clients, those are articulated as, uh, as contractual interfaces as well. In that case, it's much easier because the contract can be written in code. Um, in many cases, it's actually an API uh, documentation, a piece of API documentation, uh, supported by a, a server of its own. Um, so the backend team deals with that. It deals with, uh, the underpinnings of the APIs, really trying to support the gestures that our, uh, our product boils down to in a very encapsulated uh, separated, uh, sort of compositionally uh, separated fashion, um, and the backend team merges sort of fluidly with the DevOps team, where DevOps has a couple of dedicated individuals who work a lot with AWS tooling and deployment cycles, uh, QA, and how we how we implement the, uh, our functional test, integration tests, and so on. Um, and the back end team works very closely with them, although DevOps works uh, closely with the front end as well to implement functional testing on the front end product. Um, and that's roughly how the team is, is architected. We, we are still sort of a, a product and, I, I guess, a disciplined and separated team. Um, one of the, the places where I think we might be going is towards more of a vertically uh, integrated team where front end, back end, and infrastructure. Uh, front-end, being web and mobile, are present on sort of a feature uh, layer. Mm. Teams right, are organized around a feature and have all the disciplines necessary to complete that feature within the team. Uh, as we have it now, it's it's sort of the, the perpendicular uh, path, if you will, where all features pass through all of our teams, which within them contain all the disciplines necessary to complete them. But might not involve all people and sort of involve ad hoc gatherings of people.
0: For sure, for sure. And it's, it's always interesting watching team structures evolve as as the product evolves, the needs evolve, and the approaches evolve. So it's 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 sort of never done. <laughs> it's always an yeah, organic absolutely. process.
1: And it changes fluidly as you grow. Yeah. Like the, the structure of a five-person team is different than a 15-person team, different than 30,
0: different than 100. Exactly, exactly. And what are some of the, uh, you mentioned auto scaling, what are some of the other AWS <laughs> services uh, your team takes advantage of? <laughs> So
1: EC2 is our our heaviest uh, load, although we do have, we keep on finding new ways to use S3 as sort of a a simple database and uh, a good way to to separate access by key. uh, Because we are a software as a service uh, company and we need to maintain some pretty good structural differences between our clients uh, while maintaining the same kind of product product level access. We've recently involved uh, SQS and SNS in our, our auto scale systems to uh, handle the the automatic deprovisioning of servers. Mm-hmm. Um, part of our, the spikiness of our load has to do with uh, the, the sending of email, which is, in addition to being spiky, a very long and sort of blocking process where, you know, to send 100,000 emails takes a good bit of time, even mm-hmm. if you are using very fast APIs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you look at the, the graphs uh, posted up on our wall, um, I mean our, monitor, uh, our monitoring systems, uh, you'll see a lot of spikes as uh, the background processing servers spin themselves up and spin themselves down to deal with uh, with outbound emails, and that just happens day over day. Uh, we don't even pay attention to it anymore. So, and that's all based on um, CloudWatch metrics, which are then hooked into notification services and. Uh, fed into uh, systems that, that pull the machines down when they're no longer needed.
0: Fantastic. That's, and look, that's, again, that, that elasticity. I mean, your, your, your business is an elastic business, and so it's great to see the infrastructure kind of tracking that and having as much exactly. as you need when you need it and then turning it off efficiently when you don't need it.
1: We're also in the process of uh, testing out Aurora for our, our more scaled database uses. Currently, we're, we're using a few RDS instances, which is working very well for us, uh, but we're curious about the and sort of cautiously uh, what's the word that I want uh, cautiously excited about the potential of a sort of limitless MySQL store that, that we can just uh, push into and don't have to worry about you know the, the fitting of data. Or potential downtimes,
0: to do migrations, things like that. For sure, for sure. Certainly, that's something uh, on the podcast. We'll have to do a deep dive in at some stage because there's some really nifty things that happen at the storage layer for Aurora that make it quite different. Even though you know, from an application perspective, you just it's that's just a a, a database that works in a MySQL compatible way that looks very familiar. But uh, under the hood Actually, is where the magic is.
1: <laughs> yeah, one of the things that we 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 do have a few uh, points where we have sort of hot table problems where. In certain events, the, the issue we haven't really touched on is uh, a popularity event where somebody will throw a party, potentially with a very limited number of RSVPs or tickets available, and it will be immediately just—I I think of it as being slashed on it—but it's uh, like a micro DDoS where you know a hundred thousand or a hundred X people or a hundred thousand X people of the, the number of available slots suddenly contact our site. Um, and in those cases, I mean, a lot of it can be handled with caching, but given that we're an interactive system and the, the numbers are constantly updating, we will have tables that are being pulled from very rapidly. Um, and obviously there are ways to handle that in, in, a, in a manually constructed, sharded, or replicated system. But with Aurora, it's sort of like, okay, I'm just going to trust that that's going to happen. So we've, we've been having some fun trying to, to figure out how to simulate such an event uh, on our, our sort of sandbox systems. Uh, the real thing being a, you know, a very large event that's, that's pretty exciting to see. Uh, simulating that kind of thing is always
0: difficult. For sure. For sure. Building, building the test cases is as, as hard as building the actual code.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. in many cases, we like to make them the same.
0: Exactly. 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 Conrad, thanks so much for, for sharing some insights and, and sharing your time today. It's been great to speak with you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Simon. It's been really fun.
0: No worries. And thanks everyone for listening as ever. We love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at Amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building.